Hey everybody, my name is Kyla. Welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. Today I want to talk a little bit about what we talked about last week, so around nostalgia, but I also want to tie in the economic perception model. So a lot of times people will ask, they'll say, are we in a recession? That's probably one of the most asked questions over the past few years. Some people will respond with, ah, yeah, we're in a recession. Other people will point to the data and say, no, we're not in a recession. And other people will say, I don't know, and they'll go back to doing whatever they need to be doing. The psychology of people is a very fickle beast. It's very hard to predict. And so I started this series last week exploring the idea of nostalgia as a forcing function for why people do the things that they do with the general idea that good old times drive a lot of our perception of current times. Nostalgia is how we look upon the past and unfortunately threats are how we see the present moment. And today I wanna to walk through this whole RV and a recession loop ideology contrasted against the nostalgia cycle loop uh, through economic perception, bifurcation and cynicism. So the figure that I have on the screen here is a rough model for how people interact with the economy. There's a few questions that everybody asks. Can I buy a house? Is my job stable? Do I have enough money to buy things I need and things that I want? So this model for people who are listening via the podcast, you have a house, you have a job, and then you have the crushing psychological weight of being alive. <laughs> and all of those tie together is a generalization, but all of those tie together into most people's economic model. Can I buy it if I want it? And the answer for a lot of people over the past few years has been, no, you can't buy it even if you want it, but people around you seem to be able to. And that creates a lot of frustration, a lot of anger, and it's annoying, it's frustrating, and wealth is concentrated amongst just a few. The economic perception model is improving, home prices are going down, the labor market is stabilizing, real wages are sort of going up, and inflation is going down, which does help a lot. But things still are not good. Like you wouldn't point around and be like, things are awesome, but you kind of do point around and say that things are, metrically speaking, awesome, but they might not feel awesome. Also nostalgia within that, where I used to be able to, or society used to be able to, and that skews the model even more, and that gets into this point of bifurcation. So millennials are finally catching up to the older generations, but for a long time, there was a really big gap between it seemed what baby boomers were able to achieve versus what millennials were able to achieve at the same age. And it doesn't seem like it was ever gonna close. And of course, you know, across all of time, younger people have had to pull themselves up by their bootstraps or whatever, but the whole labor market model changed over the past few decades. You just can't go as hard on a nine to five. Like you cannot afford what you used to be able to afford on a nine to five salary. You can't really buy a house in places where most people are trying to buy houses because life is expensive and wages haven't kept up with the reality as something uh, that Noah Opinion discussed when he was talking about the Vibe Session in a recent article that he wrote. We can theorize about the psychology of the Vibe Session all day long, but maybe in the end, it's just a wage session. <laughs> and ownership of assets is a whole separate issue. These three charts, so the collective power of baby boomers, the amount of money that they have in the money market funds and corporations, they own a lot of equity and real estate. They have almost $80 trillion in net worth. They're sitting pretty. That's a lot of money and a lot of real estate. And of course they don't tend to, they tend to own things outright. They don't have mortgages. But of course, like their reality is bifurcated too. Nearly half of boomers don't have anything saved for retirement. And disparity is of course, unfortunately, nothing new. Top incomes in the US skyrocketed post pandemic. And while lower income Americans did get a wage boost, it isn't the wage boost that we need to tip things back into balance. So even within 
generational bifurcation, there's still bifurcation. And then there are those stories told. So cynicism. So when we think about who has a lot of economic power, it's the boomers. Uh, they have a lot of spending power. They have a lot of political sway. And boomers pay attention. The collective stories that we tell, something that I've written a lot about, influence how people feel. And I think there's there's two things here, black mirrorification and institutional nihilism. So black mirror, I've actually never seen black mirror. But if you know the show, it's, it's a show about how Things are dystopian in the in this universe that Black Mirror inhabits. How tech can really lose control of the plot has been highlighted in a recent tweet. Black Mirror preys on the cultural appetite for dystopia porn and abuses the psychoactive mimetic properties of fiction to imbue bad versions of reality with undeserved hypersexual credence. Make good art about the realities you want to instantiate not the ones you want to avoid. A lot of big words in that tweet. But the whole idea is that Black Mirror is feeding us into like that true crime stuff that people really like to pay attention to. People like bad things. We like to pay attention to bad things. It's our brains. And there's a caveat, of course, that shows like Black Mirror show let us process this unease and, and move forward from the freakiness as Hayden Jackson highlighted. But still, we tend to only focus on the unease. The present moment becomes a threat rather than something exciting. Marshall McLuhan was spot on here. People prefer bad news to good news because bad news provides them with a survival emotion while good news threatens them with change. We don't like change. Nobody really likes change that much. So when good things happen, we raise our eyebrows really nervously and we lose trust in the underlying system because TV shows say that we should. And of course, change itself is really scary. So when things are going okay, it doesn't always feel that way. As Joey wrote, a large part of the reason our economic discourse is broken is that a strong majority of people report hearing news about higher unemployment, despite the fact that unemployment is at historic lows and the US has added uh, 1.5 million jobs in the last six months. And it's no secret that if you are a news organization or if you make YouTube videos about the economy and if you say something like the world is ending and do like one of those thumbnails of you screaming, you're going to get clicks. You're going to get some ad revenue, right? And if you say, hey, things are doing OK and there's a lot of new ones, not the same amount of clicks. And, you know, people read it, whatever. But the problem is that some people believe that clickbait title and then they go and turn around and have conversations with their friends along the lines of, hey, did you hear that the world is ending? Who then talk to their friends and then boom, you know, that's the discourse. And then there's institutional nihilism. So these people then look for somebody to save them from the impending doom that they exist in. And that's the institutional nihilism as Steve Bannon described it and Derek Thompson expanded upon the Tucker, Rogan, Elon, Bannon combo platter, right? It's the paranoid style of politics updated for the 21st century, a poo-poo platter of you can't trust them conspiracy cast. These are the people that will save you from the world ending, hypothetically. They're also the people that sow seeds of distrust into existing structures, postulate on Twitter about recessions, and tend to proclaim that things are much worse than they actually are. The marginal cost of plausible bullshit is effectively zero. As Anne Applebaum wrote, but a certain kind of autocrat, of whom Putin is the outstanding example, seeks to convince people of the opposite, not to participate, not to care, and not to follow politics at all. The constant provision of absurd, conflicting explanations and ridiculous lies, famous firehouse of falsehoods encourages many people to believe that there is no truth at all. The result is widespread cynicism. If you don't know what's true after all, then there isn't anything you can do about it. Protest is pointless and engagement is useless. And there is a lot to talk about here. Cynicism as a driving force for how people interact with the world and a general sense of giving up. And the thing is, I don't really think that's how like most people interact with the world. I don't think that most people are that cynical. It's well known that the most annoying people tend to be the loudest and 
those loud people, even if their beliefs aren't as popular, tend to permeate the discourse just based on sheer volume alone. And to be fair, you know, some of this is warranted. If you see companies going through layoffs, it's going to change your economic perception. It's going to feel really bad because it is really bad. But there is a vein of distrust that runs deeper and the cynicism bleeds into how everyone interacts with the economy and interprets the collective reality, which creates some weird feelings. And there's a constant threat. So the AP published a piece saying, well, is it a rolling recession or a rich session or what is it? And the thing is, it's probably a mix of all those things like tech layoffs and finance and layoffs. It's all, it's, you know, it's concentrated in one part of the economy. The economy is changing. Credit sensitive industries are flopping around because cheap credit can't drive the economy anymore. The economy has been weird because of the looming threat of inflation and elements of declining growth and just general fear. It makes sense that people are spooked out. But what's sort of funny about all this is that fiscal policy has been the buttress for the economy as the Fed has whacked at things with the rate high hammer, the support of fiscal policy that we had during the pandemic, coupled with the now enacted investment from the pre-chips and pre-IRA Act, plus planned investment from both of those things, has made the economy really good. We've managed to get inflation down and see growth, which is bonkers, especially because the rest of the world hasn't been able to achieve that. There's this tweet that, you know, Joey, uh, who runs a great Substack, tweeted out like, Things are okay, economically speaking. And some guy responds, the only growth in America is inflation. The Uber from my house to the airport went from 27 to $53. Number one, like it's bizarre that we are able to get somebody to drive to our home, pick us up, and then take us somewhere else for $27. I mean, $50 is kind of a sweet deal for that. We have so many things that were from the zero interest rate world. I'm nostalgic for that world that I remember where somebody could drive to my house, drive me wherever I want to go for very little money. And because that's not happening anymore, I'm going to get very cynical and very angry and think that the rest of the economy is very, very bad. And that's not true. As Matt Darling said, even when inflation is low, if you ask a non-econ nerd about inflation, they would immediately say inflation is too high because they understand inflation to mean I would like goods to be cheaper. What fiscal policy has accomplished is honestly pretty incredible. We are building a lot of chip fabs and EV manufacturing facilities, and that has provided support to the manufacturing side of the economy, which has allowed the U.S. to remain stable as other countries try to find their footing. As rogue economy that is shaky because you have both inflation and a looming threat of, if not recession, then declining growth, the only thing that can actually tackle both of those phenomena is an increase in productivity and an increase in production. And we are doing that. People are starting to feel better. Jordan Wiseman highlighted that only 44% of Americans think that we're in a recession versus the 60% that it used to be. And to be clear, you know, there's a lot coming down the road. Student loan payments, funky real estate markets, firms in distress. It's never, ever perfect. And I'm not, I, I don't think I've ever said that, right? Like things are always going to be a little bit strange. But circling back to cynicism, when we think about the economic perception model, it makes a lot of sense that people are frustrated. Wages haven't kept up. Houses don't seem attainable. There's bifurcation and stratification, which is compounded by cynicism and distrust, but it's like a personal thing too. As Simon Sarris wrote, people avoid all talk of serious goals because if they admit them even to themselves, then they would have to accept the fact that they can fail. We have to be able to accept failure and scary things and the fact that things are relatively okay-ish. It sometimes feels really futile uh, to be like, hey, well, listen, here's what we could do to fix this big societal problem that we have had for many decades. But there are antidotes, I think, to refocusing the collective imagination. Cynicism is really lazy. It's really, really lazy. As Maria Popova said in her 2016 commencement address at the University of Pennsylvania, Today, the soul is in dire need of stewardship and protection from cynicism. 
The best defense against it is rig vigorous, intelligent, sincere hope, not blind optimism because that is too a form of resignation, to believe that everything will work out just fine and we need not to apply ourselves. I mean hope bolstered by critical thinking that is clear-headed and identifying what is lacking in ourselves in the world, but then envisions ways to create it and endeavors to do that. In its passivity and, resi in its passivity and resignation, cynicism is a hardening, a calcification of the soul. Hope is a stretching in its ligaments, a limber reach for something greater. Hope and imagination, the ability to see the world a little bit different than the one that we inhabit. Um, and I'm going to include this giant passage from Ursula K. Le Guin. I think the imagination is the single most useful tool mankind possesses. It beats the opposable thumb. I can imagine living without my thumbs, but not without my imagination. I hear voices agreeing with me. Yes, yes, they cry. The creative imagination is a tremendous plus in business. We value creativity. We reward it. In the marketplace, the word creativity has become to mean the generation of ideas applicable to practical strategies to make larger profits. This reduction has gone on so long that the word creative can hardly be degraded further. I don't use it anymore, yielding to capitalists and academics to abuse it as they like, but they can't have imagination. Imagination is not a means of making money. It has no place in the vocabulary of profit making. It is not a weapon, though all weapons originate from it and their use or non-use depends on it, as with all tools and their uses. The imagination is an essential tool of the mind, a fundamental way of thinking, an indispensable means of becoming and remaining human. Imagination is important, and so is real-world data. We have to make sure that people get paid enough to live, like that is something that is super important. And we have to figure out imagination, not harness it as a way of helping VCs return capital to LPs, but rather to create a better world for all of us to live in. Thanks so much for hanging out. Thanks so much for spending time with me. This is a Substack, kyla.substack.com, um, TikTok, everywhere. I hope you all are doing okay, and I'll talk to you very soon. Bye.